Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Sean Kelly. Sean owes it all to Twisted Sister. After first seeing the video for We're Not Gonna Take It in 1984, he was able to answer the question that all of us must face at some point. What do you want to do with your life? And just like the video's teen protagonist tells his domineering dad, Sean Kelly declared, I want to rock. Thus, Sean became a professional rock guitarist, shredding with notables such as the metal queen herself, Lee Aaron, Helix, Gilby Clark, Dee Snider, and somewhat surprisingly, Nelly Furtado. He also founded and fronted his own band, Crash Kelly. But even though he wanted to rock, and has rocked, Sean also needed to teach. Thus, he has had a 20-year career as a music teacher with the Toronto Catholic District School Board. And furthermore, Sean needed to write. Thus, his new book, don't Call It Hair Metal, Art in the Excess of 80s Rock has just hit bookstores, and it is a love letter to the hard-rocking but often snub music of that era, featuring interviews with members of Twisted Sister, Def Leppard, Poison, Whitesnake, Rat, Guns N' Roses, and Quiet Riot. Welcome, Sean, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you, and how are you? Thank you for having me, Andrew. Uh, I am here at Holton in, uh, in Toronto. And I'm doing great. I'm a little tuckered out. I'm, I'm I'm currently in the Toronto production of Rock of Ages, so that's keeping me hopping. And uh, had a show last night and getting ready for two shows today. So yeah, but life is good. Life is good. Excellent. What is the status of Rock of Ages, and and how much of that uh, day does that entail for you? Well, uh, the status is we are in our final few weeks. We're actually down to uh, nine shows left. It's been an amazing run. Our last show is May twentieth. It entails it's uh, six performances a week, but it's you know it's playing the soundtrack of my life. It's it's such a joy and it's such a talented cast and 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 crew and ensemble and um, yeah, I uh, funny and 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 heartwarming and kick ass and all the things you want in eighties uh, rock musical. Well, it sounds like you really enjoyed it. Loved it. Loved it. You got so much going on. School is in session. Rock of Age is still in performances. Your new book is now on sale wherever you get your books. But summer, of course, Sean, is the time for touring. Do you have yeah, it lined up for the summer? It's going to be a busy one. There's lots of dates. Um, starting with, uh, I play with a band called Coney Hatch. We're heading to Sweden for the, the Sweden Rock Festival with Def Leppard and Iron Maiden and Motley Crue and Europe and every every rock band under the sun, you know, and we're, we're heading out and checking that out and then... Uh, as you mentioned before, I play with Lee Aaron, and we have a very busy summer tour schedule, lots of festivals. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be an action-packed summer for sure. Excellent. Your passport's up to date. Do you still like to travel? All good. You know, we just got back uh, from the Monsters of Rock cruise with Lee Aaron, so that left from Port Canaveral, Florida, and went all the way to Haiti, to Labadee, and um, yeah, it, 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 it's amazing. Love, uh, you know, the traveling is a little more challenging post-COVID, I won't lie. But, uh, you know, I always say I don't get paid to play. I get paid to travel. That's, hey, who can't ask for more? 
Yeah. Sean, I got to ask you, the Monsters of Rock Yacht Cruise Tour, what's it like uh, on one of these uh, yacht tours? For me, it was absolutely incredible because I got to not only perform with, but get to go see all these bands that I listened to, and they're all there. I, I was... I basically had my schedule and my pen and my marker out. And I said, if I'm going to be here for kicks and I'll see Extreme here, Winger here, Vandenberg over here, Michael Schenker over here. And, and I, I saw them all and I loved it. And yeah, and great people. Met a lot of really lovely people on the cruise. It was a wonderful interactive experience between fans and bands. And yeah, loved it. It just sounds like a great time. Yeah, it was. It was wonderful. Let's please go all the way back at the Sean Kelly story. Born in small town Quebec, at the age of seven, you moved to North Bay. And what happened Christmas 1984 that essentially changed your life? Oh, man, uh, that was, uh, you know, the after pestering my parents, you know, my my dad went and, and got me a pawn shop guitar, a red, no name, nondescript, action a mile high off the neck guitar. But I, I loved it. And, and that just that just set the course for... Um, yeah, what was to become my life, really. It was it was amazing. Like, I, I just, I remember I jumped in front of the mirror for a good two years before I ever took a lesson, you know? I just, I, I just couldn't believe I had one. Style was important. Uh, very important. You show people how to listen, right? It, yeah, show people how to listen. I want to ask about some of the memories from growing up, buying your albums at Records on Wheels. You were rocking a rat headband. You had a time-sharing agreement with a buddy for Motley Crue's Theater of Pain. Yeah. And the Thursday afternoon ritual of so many of us of Much Music's Pepsi Power Hour. Yeah. How do these things all stick in your brain and, and what, what stands out for you? Well, they're they're all vivid memories. You know, it's so funny that my friend Sean Walshoy shared that record with us. I was just talking to him today. And, and you know, here we are at 50. We, we, we still talk every week about the same things, same bands, you know, talk about music, uh, did you hear this? You know, oh man, I went back and listened to this. It's so great. Uh, you know, those are all formative memories and they're, yeah, you know, nostalgia warms the cockles of our hearts, right? Like, I mean, and and those were my formative years. And, and at the time, really, that um, hard rock and heavy metal, that was, you know, the popular music of the day. So that was what was informing us. That's what we were seeing on much music and reading about in magazines. And, but, you know, for me, it hit, maybe a little deeper than the casual listener because I wanted to embody it. Like it, it became an identity for me. I just remember it feeling like a puzzle, like a code I had to crack. It's like, how do I become this? Like, how do you do this? And it wasn't like you could go and Google things, you know, you just had to piece it together from the backs of album covers and the musicians who were around who had experience, older musicians, and I, I did have an opportunity later on to play with older musicians who kind of showed me the ropes, and I got an idea. And, you know, sometimes it's better not to know too much. You just kind of formulate your own idea, and you stick to it with the conviction that only a 16 or 17-year-old can have, because you know everything that it's a really wonderful time. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that knowledge kind of becomes less and less as you get older. <laughs> well, you certainly... Learn by doing, and Sean, your guitar led you through the high school battle of the bands and later through the rough and tumble bars in Northern Ontario. What were the lessons learned that they didn't teach you in school? Well, you know, you learn a lot about uh, the human condition when you're playing on a Thursday night in Timiskam in Quebec or Mattawa, Ontario or Sturgeon Falls, Ontario. And uh, 
yeah, you know, it definitely informed me as a musician because like, you know, that's where you kind of learn to troubleshoot. That's where you learn to see what works with an audience, what connects, you know, and I had, I had the good fortune of, of getting into that pretty early on, you know, in my, in my life. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Or not. Yeah. Well, one thing that I noted you've been quoted as saying is you have to be ready to play born to be wild at any moment. Yeah, that's that's that saved a few bands bacon. I'm sure you know. Sometimes things can get ugly, but that seemed to be a a a, a good one to to get you out of a jam. <laughs> Calms the masses. Yeah, Sean, how and why did you end up moving from North Bay to Toronto? Well, I was determined to find a way to to make records. I wanted to make records, and you know. From what magazines told me, it was either Los Angeles or New York or some big city. But, you know, I I was reading on the backs of the records, you know, for example, Shout at the Devil, WIA, Warner Electric Atlantic, oh, there's an office in Toronto and Scarborough, right? Oh, I was like, oh, okay, well, Toronto's close. And, you know, I, I, I was going to move to Los Angeles. I really wanted to go to a place called the Guitar Institute of Technology and then just kind of try my luck, you know, on the Sunset Strip. But um, my parents, and especially my mom, you know, being uh, the wise woman she was, she said, well, you know, there's opportunities in Toronto and maybe you could go to school, you know, and you could get better at what you do and get, get you know. I was always a pragmatic kid anyway. I loved school. I loved being in school. And um, so this idea of going, getting an education, you know, you could get a student loan, you know, to kind of help you get through and, 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 and still be in the Canadian epicenter of what was happening, there was actually a magazine called Meat Magazine, Metal Events Around Toronto that we used to get at the Records on Wheels and in North Bay, and uh, that was founded by the great Drew Masters, a good friend of mine. And he, uh, you know, like that that was kind of, gave me hope. I could see that there was a burgeoning scene in Toronto with bands like Svengali and Slick Toxic who were getting record deals. And I said, hey, man, maybe maybe this is it. Uh, I go there and... And that's what I did. I went and I, I was fortunate enough to get accepted at the University of Toronto to study classical guitar. So I went and did that and I put a band together and uh, yeah, things thing kind of popped pretty quick once I did that. So it was good. Well, you were studying classical guitar, as you say, at the U of T by yeah. day and by night, rocking the stages at Gasworks, Rock and Roll Heaven. Yeah, I never got to actually play Rock and Roll Heaven, but I did. I used to go there all the time, but I did get to play at the Gasworks. In fact... I threw a band together with the first long-haired guys I found at U of T. I was like, you're in a band. And, and, and it was very exotic. Two of these guys, they were brothers, and they were from New Jersey, Mike and Joe Tetro. And Skid Row was from New Jersey. Bon Joe, this is amazing. I'm, I'm in a band with guys from America. And I found a drummer, Rob Terry, and we put a band together. And, you know, I would just get on the phone. And I, I remember bugging a guy named Donnie Blaze. Donnie was the guy who booked the Gasworks and... And I bug him and bug him. And finally, he just got, I said, I can bring people. I can, I, I've got people. I got, we're, we're great. You got to check out our demo. And eventually, he just, he said, okay. And he gave us an opening slot for a band called Psycho Circus, who were on Hantham Records. And I was like, oh, this is great. And um, we actually were uh, in attendance that night. It was a guy named Jamie Stewart, who was the bass player for the cult, who had just moved to Canada. Uh, and he was, uh, wanted to become a record producer. And we ended up doing a demo with us. So it was, it was amazing, you know? Well, in addition, Sean, I understand you won the Q107 homegrown contest and you got a record deal, but the record deal went away. 
Well, yeah, that was with uh, an artist named Chad Richardson. That was years later, back in 1996. And uh, yeah, Chad's an incredible talent um, who did very well, went on to uh, start the Broadway production of Rent and uh, and uh, be- became a record company executive and it did, did, has done very well for himself. But yeah, we, we got to deal with Aquarius Records and it was pretty exciting. I was working at Tower Records at the time. And I remember, like, I was working in the shipping department, and the records came in. I was actually putting the price tags on the records. I was like, wow, look at all these records. And there was a big display, and uh, my manager at the time let us do an in-store there. And then I also remember packing up the CDs that didn't sell and shipping them back, and that wasn't as fun, you know. But but it was a great experience, you know, like, to sit in a record company office in Montreal on tour and see all the gold and platinum records, the April Wine and the Corey Hart, and feel like you were somehow a part of it was uh well, yeah it was very special you get to make a record and go on tour and actually get a few bucks for it like it was incredible well certainly very exciting sean was you fronted your own band crash kelly yeah scored a u.s record deal and yeah. toured north america with alice cooper but the most interesting part might be why you chose the band name crash kelly and its connection to what many consider the definitive hockey movie Slapshot. that's right uh well i named that as a tribute to my uncle orville crash kelly who played alongside my father, Des Kelly, uh, for the Johnstown Jets um, uh, hockey team in the Eastern Hockey League. And that was that team was the inspiration for the movie Slapshot. You know, Eddie Shore was the coach, and my dad told me plenty of stories that kind of mirrored what you see happening in, you know, in the movie. And by all accounts, my uncle could have been a Hanson very easily, you know, in terms of his physicality in the game. And and my dad was no uh, shrinking violet either. So unfortunately, that whole gene just skipped me. I, I don't know. As a hockey player, I'm not a bad guitar player. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's a good way to say it. Yeah. Now, you had so many things in your life, Sean, that I would classify as surreal. And the first one was the first concert you ever attended back in North Bay, Helix and Honeymoon Suite. Yeah. You eventually played with both of them that to me is ridiculously surreal. It's it's unbelievable, really. Uh, but yeah, that was that was the first concert I saw, and really a defining moment because it, it made me realize guys from Kitchener can be rock stars. Like I've been to Kitchener. I've I know where that is. I played hockey in Kitchener. I know where it is. Like that felt tangible, and they were amazing. Like Helix, it was a world class band. Honeymoon Suite, world class band. So I'm hearing these great songs, seeing great guitar players right in front of me and uh and then years later how it worked out where i ended up you know touring and playing and writing songs with both those bands it's it's really really quite kind of wonderful let's start with helix you actually first joined them to play bass i would have washed windows to be in helix you know what i mean like i bugged brian Vollmer for years he must but you know brian is a guy who actually writes back to everybody like he he stays that and he would tell me i like it look it Buddy, I don't need a guitar player. But he'd write back, and I said, oh, well, at least he's writing back. I'll just keep the bug in his ear. And it was eventually my friend um, Mitch Lafont, a journalist out of Montreal, who, when they were looking for a bass player, recommended me. And sure enough, Brian remembered my name because I talked to him. He goes, okay, come on out. And I went and tried out and got the gig. And the funny thing is, I, I remember he already had a writing team at that point, and he said, listen, don't get any ideas. You're not going to be playing on any records. You're not going to be writing any songs. I said, got it. Which, of course, to me meant, can't wait to share some song ideas with you. Yeah. Which I would do subtly. I'd sit in the dressing room and hum and play. 
eventually caught one caught his ear we, and we ended up having a wonderful songwriting relationship and i think we made some amazing albums together well absolutely and sean now that you've shown your worth and convinced brian and the guys in helix you can also write in addition to just play subtly how does nelly Furtado come into your life well that was interesting that that kind of speaks to contacts and 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 friendships that you make along the way i received a phone call from my uh former guitar tech in a band called revolver and in crash kelly named damon emright damon enright and he said, hey, man, you want to go? We would get together. Hey, you want to go for beer? Sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll hook up. He said, oh, wait, I'm working with Nelly Furtado now. She needs a guitar player who can play Spanish guitar. You play, don't you play Glasgow? I was like, yeah, I'm not the right guy for that gig. And I'm playing in Helix. Like, I'm not the, he said, oh, no, man, you should check this gig out. Like, we go all over the world. It's pretty cool. And I said, well, okay. So I, re- I he, he put, uh, my name in with the music director but it turns out the fellow who was leaving was a guy i went to u of t with james bryant and james also put in a word for me and so i got the invite to go down and yeah you know what one thing led to another well let's not understate this sean you correct me if i'm wrong at this time on the strength of her duet with timberland called promiscuous nelly Furtado is arguably the biggest female star in the world at this time yeah and your first show with her is playing in a festival in Mexico City. And luckily, it was very small. It was a very small crowd of how many? Oh, just 150,000. Uh, and, and on top of this, apparently, you had some technical difficulties. Well, first of all, everything happened very quickly. Like, it was in the rehearsals. I don't know if, if I even have a job. I just They just keep telling me to come back. And then one day, it's like, oh, I got a paycheck for rehearsing. I was like, okay, so that's a good sign. Eventually, I had to ask the guy, I said, do I have a gig? And he goes, yeah, dude, you got, you have a gig. Like, I, eventually, I played, and she came down and checked it out, and she, she thought I was okay. And then it was like, okay, we're going to Mexico. Oh, great, how exciting, you know? So off we go, and yeah, we play outside right downtown in the big town's city square, city center in Mexico City. Just a sea of humanity, right? Like, just tons of people, and it's like, holy but when I went in, it was my first time using in-ear monitors. Like, I'd never used them before. I always had big wedges, old school. Well, we had a different mixer. My mix, I couldn't hear anything. I was lost. And I went, uh-oh. And I don't have the wherewithal. I can't even find where the monitor desk is. I don't know. I just... But we had been so well rehearsed. And I just sat beside the drummer and I kind of, you know, popped the ear out. I could hear him play. I was like, okay... I thought for sure I was fired at the end of it, though. I, I couldn't hear it. I, I walked off and, okay, here we go. And the music director getting the high five. We killed it. And I said, okay, good. Because, so it speaks to the power of rehearsal because I didn't hear a thing. But but it was quite an experience and quite a rush. Like, I mean, some of the things that we did with Nelly to this day, I look back and go, did that even happen? <laughs> you know? Well, I got another very surreal one for you, Sean. You played with Nelly Furtado 2012 on the German version of The Voice. And who surprised you as one of the celebrity judges? Nana, my 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 childhood crush, Nana. Like I mean, yeah, it was it, that was another surreal moment. Like you know, I, I kind of looked at. I remember being a little. You know, sometimes I, I'm pretty pretty cool cucumber. You know, I can kind of. I'm not gonna let the pressure get to me or anything. But that one, I was feeling the heat. You know, there's a full orchestra. It's just me and Nelly. I'm kind of there representing her on the musical side. I'm going, oh man, okay. 
and I got to start this thing, you know, in front of 5 million people watching. And I, you know, the, and not to mention it's some poor kid who's, who's singing with her, it's his career on the line. But I just remember looking out at Nana and going, you're not going to screw this up, man. You bought her cassette records on wheels. You just, you just won't make a mistake. You're going to be fine. Why would you do that to Nana? It would be so unfair. <laughs> just to be clear, Nana is Nana of 99 Los Balloon. Yeah, that's right. I remember buying that cassette and being, why is this? What language is that? What happened? It's all in German, except for the one two. Well, when you talk about playing in heat, you literally played in heat uh, when you were with Lier and you played a show in, uh, I guess it was in the high 30s and you decided to keep your leather jacket on. Oh yeah, that's a commitment. You know what? I, I did that. I, I, there's a couple of times I've done that. That one was a tough one, but the toughest one was when I was playing with Helix at Rocklahoma in Tulsa and it got up to 110 Fahrenheit. It was cooking. And I had the, I remember Warren Demartini from Rat saying, dude, you got to take that jacket off. It's hot out there. I'm like, no, man, I'm just going to take, I'm going to leave it on for a few songs. Well, yeah, I left it on for a few songs. I was seeing Stars by Song 3, and they couldn't peel it off me. The jacket was stuck. It was like a paste. It was like a leather paste on my arms. And I had some guy with like Spinal Tap, like standing on my back, trying to pull the jacket off behind the amps. Yeah, but that Lee Aaron show last summer, it was a odd one. We were, and, and she, she, to her credit, rocked right through it. She's amazing. In 2017, you played again with Nelly Furtado at Corey Hart's induction into the Canadian War of Fame. And yeah. Corey loved your playing, and I understand it was a just a great event. That was wonderful. Man, what a class act. Like, his speech was so moving and, um, and so heartfelt. He's just such a good, genuine human being, and it was such an honor to play that. And I... I, I, I knew when we got, when she told me we were doing that, I said, I've got to play the parts just like the record. Like she likes to reinvent things, right? And she's amazing at it. But I said, I've got to play that solo, no for no. Like that's Andy Barnett, who I've since become friends with on Facebook. I said, I have to, I have to play it just like that. Like that's the solo, right? Like, and those guitar parts are just so iconic. Um, and yeah, and, and after he actually, you know, sought me out and sent someone to, and to come up and, and kind of compliment me and 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 you know like yeah he helped share it he, he said man i closed my eyes it was like 1985 i was standing beside andy and i was like well that was amazing like he didn't have to say that he didn't have to take time out of his induction to get that the guitar player the side guy and the artist who was paying tribute to him to give him a comment but you know what Corey, he actually stayed in touch and he sent me an email he was he was working with um uh, pa- Patrick Ross' son, uh, who is uh, an, an artist, and and um, I, I couldn't do it. I had a tour commitment, but you know, he asked me if I wanted to play. And anyway, it was very cool. He's a wonderful, wonderful musician, and an even better human being. If you are enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got Glass Tigers' Alan Frew, Blue Rodeo's Basil Donovan, Chalk Circles' Chris Tate. NPR World Cafe's Raina Duras, rapper Chaclair, and the boxes Jean-Marc Pisapia. How they did it directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, the next very surreal moment, Sean, we got is you eventually got to tell Twisted Sister's Dee Snider in person how the song he wrote for Twisted Sister changed your life and you went on to actually spend months working with him as not only a guitarist and actor and his musical 
rock and roll Christmas tale, but really a collaborator. This being at Toronto's Winter Garden Theater in 2015. I mean, this must have just blown your mind. That to me is still like the kind of the apex. Like that, like that, that to to actually not only meet, but get to work with the person who inspired you to do what's become your lifelong passion is amazing. And Dee has such an incredible work ethic, such a talent, such a great guy, so intense. Yeah, when, when that guy jumps on stage with you, it's like someone shooting you with a thousand lightning bolts. Like you just feel the energy of one of the all-time great rock and roll front men. And man, what a great experience that was. It's such a challenge, you know, because I thought I was going to play guitar. And then they hand me a script, send an acting coach to my house. And next thing you know, I'm with a Broadway choreographer trying to learn how to get my two left feet to work, right? Like it was, it was a lot, but I love theater. And like, it has to be, for me, it has to be rock and roll theater. It has to be rock and roll based, but like doing this, doing Rock of Ages, seeing the work and the talent and the joy it brings people, I absolutely am hooked on it, and I I love it. Well, it's amazing how your your world gets bigger when you jump into all these different things. And clearly, you say, "Give me the challenge, I'm going to take it." Well, you know what? Why, why not? Right? Like, I mean, I am certainly not the best guitar player out there. Not even close. I'm not the best guitar player in my street. There's a kid down the street that I get intimidated by. I don't even want to look him in the eye. But, um, you know, wh- why not? Like, I mean, I I think if you get your knees and elbows up and just kind of go out there and take the risk, yeah, you, you might fall down, but you learn a lot falling down, right? You learn how to get up. And getting up's half the battle, you know what? Like, like Balmer told me one day, he just said, hey, you know what my game plan is? Don't quit. That's it. Just don't quit. And eventually, if you don't quit... Maybe you get a break somewhere, you know? I think you have to listen to the universe and see what's working and what's not because you got to eat and you want to, if you have a family, you got to take care of them. But um, yeah, man, I think I think you just got to dive in and go for it. Great words of advice. Don't quit. Yeah. Let's get back to the other band that you saw in your first concert and played with eventually, Honeymoon Suite. How did that come about and how'd you play with them? Well, uh, same thing. I reached out and bugged Derry Gray in for years, and eventually he acquiesced and said, okay, and he came over to my house one day, and we had a songwriting session. Not too much came of it. We kind of poked around, but we got along, and, you know, uh, I, I'm trying to think how that first songwriting session, yeah, we had we had a couple of songwriting sessions and kicked around a couple of ideas, and as the years went on, we would see each other, I, you know, Coley Hatch would be playing, or Lee Aaron, or like, we'd be on festival bills together, and you see, in touch, and at one point, they were looking to maybe try and get back in touch with a little bit of the original spirit of Honeymoon Suite. They knew I was a big fan, so they invited me in to do some writing, and we ended up writing a bunch of songs for uh, an EP that was called Hands Up that they released, and uh, wrote some some great songs, some songs I'm very proud to be a part of. And out of that, I was called at one point, Derry's, uh had, a, had an illness in his family. It was an emergency situation. And they needed a guitar player, ASAP. Now, I was actually on the road with my band with M. Griner called Trapper. We were out on the road with Def Leppard. We were supporting Def Leppard on tour. And I got this call. I said, like, Sean, can you do this gig in BC? I said, no, man, I, I, I'm on, I've got my last Def Leppard show. I can't. So they got somebody to fill in the show in BC. But then I met them in Burlington, Ontario. No rehearsal. We just kind of went in and, we, and played a honeymoon suite set. But... I grew up with those songs, right? Like I, I knew them. And fortunately, the guitar tech 
was Damon Enright, the guy who got me with Nelly Furtado. Like, so Damon knew me. He kind of walked me through. He knew what I did. He knew what I'd need to get through the gig. I actually ended up playing Derry's guitar and amp and everything. Like, I didn't even bring my own gear. Pretty cheeky, right? That's like playing Eddie Van Halen's guitar. I'm playing Derry's, like, signature guitar. But it wasn't trying to be cheeky. It was just trying to survive it. But it went well. It went well. And then when Derry uh, needed to sub out on some dates, I, I did about six or seven shows with them uh, touring that summer, and it was incredible. Uh, yeah, man, I was playing with one of the great voices and Johnny D, one of the great bands of all time, Dave Batts, Gary Lalonde, Peter Nunn, like, great, great band. And, yeah, that's how it came about, just out of friendship and wonderful experience. Another great voice is a former guest of this podcast and the pride of both Glasgow and Newmarket, Glass Tigers' Alan Frew. What was your involvement with him? Well, once again, out of a songwriting uh, situation, my friend Craig McConnell had been writing some songs. He's uh, uh, an amazing songwriter and producer and had been working with Alan, and I think we were trying to write a song to pitch for a Canadian Idol or, 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 or a Canadian Idol artist or something. So we got together for a songwriting session. It was funny. I, 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 first, it wasn't too fruitful, but then, then we just started jamming on something that sounded more like an Alice Cooper riff, and we kind of got into a vibe, and Alan and I really kind of were, were, were hitting it off, and I, I just told him, I said, hey, man, I think you're one of the, the great rock and roll voices of all time. If, if there's ever an opportunity for me to play guitar with you, I would, I would welcome it, you know? I'd be honored. And years later, when he was getting ready to do his 80 to 90 Rewind put that band together he, he did an amazing album in nashville of like these reimagined 80s hits he called me to audition and i had just finished the d snyder show so i went down auditioned and fortunately was one of the guys he picked uh, to play in the band and yeah i can't say enough about alan like that guy his voice is on every time he kills it every time always brings it a wonderful person to work with really looks out for his band that's a true star you know a star who who who, who treats people with humanity and respect and Great guy. That's fabulous. Yeah. Sean, I want to ask you about a TV show memories. I believe you played Conan O'Brien's show with uh, Nelly Furtado. Mm-hmm. I did. And what's the whole experience like playing on like a, these are all, it's a live show that's recorded and do you literally just go up and play one song and what's the process? Yeah, it's one take, you get up and you do it, right? So it can be a little nerve wracking too, you can, but, but I mean, it was so exciting. I just remember... I'm playing and Ted Danson is right beside me. Like you're close in those situations. Those studios are smaller than they look on TV and I'm playing. And at the end of it, it was so cool. Cause we, we were the last thing to happen. And then Conan comes out and Ted Danson came over and shook my hand. And my dad got to see that, you know, like for my dad, it was always, you know, like to have a reference, like that's Sam Malone from cheers. Okay. I get it now. I finally get why you wear makeup or leather pants, okay? That's why you do it. You get the, I don't know if that's the case, but, but you know what I mean? It was a reference for a minute, and you know, it was pretty exciting, man. Like, we were staying, I remember staying at the old Riot Hyatt, the Andes in Hollywood, and on Sunset Strip, and being in L.A., and, you know. And I remember also on that trip, we played K KTLN, well, one of, the, one of the big L.A., the local L.A. morning shows, and Kiss showed up. So we play our, our song in the morning. And this limo shows up. And it's Kiss comes out in full Kiss outfit. Because they're promoting a tour. But the drummer was Eric Singer. 
And Eric had played an Alice Cooper bit and he recognized me from opening up and also because I was a, a friend of Gilby Clark and, and, and they were neighbors and he recognized me and called me over. So I had just gotten the Nelly gig, but they don't know me from the Holy Grail, but Kiss is calling me over. Like, how cool is that? So anyway, I got to meet Paul and Gene and get my picture taken. And, and there's and when you see the picture, I look like a 12-year-old kid. Like, I'm like, yeah, pretty happy. Honestly, Sean, you are the Forrest Gump of uh, rock and roll. You're always where it happens. You know what? Some I, 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 D kind of pointed out, I gave him a copy of my first book, and he goes, don't you think this is weird? Like, like how this is, how your life was working out? Like, seems like you're, and I said, yeah, I guess it's kind of, is, but you know, I don't know if it's, you manifest that stuff. I mean, I mean, I'm not, I actively seek out trying to work with people. Yeah, it has worked out in a kind of serendipitous way. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. It's not just a happenstance. The hard work and the opportunity meet, that's what they say, and then good things happen. And when you talk about big names, another huge one was with Crash Kelly, you opened up for Quiet Riot in 2005. Apparently, bassist Rudy Sarzo, another guest of this podcast, personally showed you some uh, cool techniques. Well, it's funny because uh, on that 2005 gig, it was actually Rudy wasn't in the band. It was Chuck Wright. Chuck Wright was playing bass in it. But I did meet Rudy because I was going to LA to make, start work on a third Crash Kelly record. And... I was talking, I was with BC Rich Guitars at the time. I said, oh man, wouldn't it be great to get like Rudy Sarzo or someone to play bass? He goes, hold on, I'll call you back. And it wasn't him that called me back, it was Rudy Sarzo. He, like he knew Rudy and Rudy said, hey man, I'm, I'm going on tour with, I think he was going on tour with Dio or Blue Oyster Cult. I said, but I'm around. And it was that easy. And so he ended up playing on the, on the third Crash Kelly record. And yeah, man, like I was like, Rudy, do the thing where you hit the horn of the guitar with your fist and like, like he used to do with choir riot white snake and he kind of said well okay and he did it for me and i was like oh, okay so i was breaking that out for a while i remember playing with carol pope a few times and breaking that out and her looking over like what the hell is this kid <laughs> well he he was a great guy i mean he had a million stories but just struck me as such a great guy and, you know he's in his 70s now and he, yeah. he's still touring like he's 22 oh yeah and like i mean and i interviewed him for my book and he is a man of, of remarkable depth, you know, like he's, uh, he's very spiritually attuned. We talked a lot about frequency and, and, and tuning and how that, the, 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 you know, the kind of frequency of the universe and how, you know, he resonates at a certain frequency with choir riot. It always draws him back. I thought that was fascinating stuff. And, and I mean, great bass player and yeah, he, he, he lives his life right. He looks great and keeps himself in shape and still doing it. You are, of course, a teacher. I got to ask about your students. Do they see concert footage of you on YouTube? And I guess you're not really relevant until you play with Nav or Drake or someone. But what do your students say and believe it when they see it? Yeah, like it's starting to kind of get out there. It's not something I actively bring up because, you know, it's not really relevant to their experience, right? We got other things to cover. It's not in the curriculum to tell them about my leather pants necessarily. But uh, but you know, it, it does get out and now, you know, with social media out there, you know, sometimes a parent will be a fan or, you know, uh, of an artist I work with or now that like, it's funny. I had, I just had, I, I teach a school called St. Timothy and had all my, um, all my staff came out to see the show, you know, and some of them didn't really know what I do, but you know, at the rock magazine, but I'm, I'm, you know, out there in the full leathers and, uh, you know, throwing the guitar around my neck and doing all that crazy stuff. Right. And yeah, it gets out, and I think, I think there's always, 
it's not necessarily like you said it's it's not necessarily i'm not playing with artists who are necessarily relevant to their experience right now but the kids have uh all the music in the world is at their fingertips right with 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 with, with streaming services so I find that tastes are very, very words. We used to kind of latch on to artists and we would identify with an artist. They, they identify with songs. So if a song catches them, they're into it, you know? Yeah. And um, I, th- I think some of them think it's cool. And, 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 you know, we have little rock bands. I, I try to go and get grants and things to get as much equipment as I can. I bring in gear and, you know, I, I, I'm always going to be a rock-centric kind of guy. And that seeps into my, my teaching too. I mean, we just did a music festival and we were doing a band arrangement of Bohemian Rhapsody and a Queen medley. And, you know, that's what, that's what I do, right? Fantastic. Yeah. Well, in addition to obviously playing live and teaching, let's talk about your new book, Don't Call It Hair Metal, Art in the Excess of 80s Rock. Sean, this is not your first rodeo. You are already a published author with your first book, Metal on Ice, Tales from Canada's Hard Rock and Heavy Metal Heroes, back in 2013. Well, first of all, congratulations. It can't be easy to, even though you've done it, putting a book together is not a simple task. No, man. Ed, well, thank you very much, first of all. And um, yeah, it's it's painful, man. Sometimes it's painful. Like it's, and, and there's a self-laceration process that goes, uh, that happens. And, and I'm I'm pretty good at beating myself up. And, and even to, like, it, it was even hard for me to let this go. You know, I was like, oh, and well, I should have made that mistake. I didn't quite get that uh, but at some point you got to let it go and get the idea out there. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a grind sometimes, especially when I'm trying to figure out what I'm trying to say. Really, I started off this book as some kind of, I really want to come out, make an academic defense. And really, I, I don't listen to music academically. How I, I was like, talking about, I kind of changed gears in, within the context of the book. Right. But, but I, I'm, I'm generally pleased with how it came out and, uh, and certainly very pleased with the insight I, I received from the artists I interviewed. Well, I think that's what makes it such a great book. It's interspersed with lots of interviews from professionals. And just to your point, Sean, it's not an academic analysis. You lived it. You have participated in it. So how do you describe your book? It is a love letter, really. And it, and it traces the sonic evolution and the artistic intention of 80s rock. That's what I want to do. How it changed. And it kind of did change in these two-year cycles you know what i mean you'd see these these cycles things changing um the different uh influences of mtv and radio tastes and and technological uh evolution on the recording side all these things that would kind of factor into uh how hard rock evolved it wasn't when people kind of lump it all in together i don't like that because it it, it doesn't it, it gives a shallow picture of the diversity that 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 happens in that scene there's a lot and i wanted to talk to the artists and see where they were coming from i wanted to make connections to the great rock and roll of the past and show how it is a part of the tapestry it should be ignored shouldn't be lumped into one i don't like the pejorative term hair metal even though now it's it's usually used with affection you know what i mean you got to call things something you got to put the yogurt somewhere in the grocery store right like i mean you got nowhere to find it but but I, I the term was pejorative and not always accurate. And I, I at least wanted to make an argument that it, it it should be considered the best of it should be considered rock and roll and part of the great rock and roll uh, heritage. Well, certainly the eighties was the time when MTV much music came about. Rudy Sarzo told me an amazing story about how one day he just was woke up just 
literally grabbed a t-shirt out of his girlfriend's closet just to throw on to get out of the house. And literally the next week, every kid in America was wearing this <laughs> bullseye target t-shirt that he'd worn because he'd worn it in the video. And we're now just had the 40th anniversary of metal health. Would you say the rise of MTV, much music and video was the single most important thing of the eighties or, or not? I think I would have to say it was because it's interesting. You talk to some people and they really hated it because it took away from their own ability to conjure up. It took away from some of the mystery, right? You had a band like Led Zeppelin. You might not know what they look like. You might, like there was a mystery. You you created your own visual narrative, right? But here you were delivered a narrative. Like literally you've got a story or a storyboard in the video. Yeah, I think... I think it was, but I think that's married with technological evolution, like the things that were happening with synthesizers, drum machines, and digital recording technology. And also, I think the corporatization of radio, where all of a sudden you have conglomerates and people are doing test markets, you're getting away from this 70s idea of what FM radio was, where it was a freeform thing, or even AM radio. You've got Led Zeppelin, you've got the Turtles, you've got... Uh, you know, Wayne Newton, like, you know, you might have all these disparate things here. You're starting to get into things that were ultimately more formulaic, but it was, you know, more taste driven. It's like, if you like this, we deliver this. So I think all of you, but I, I would, I would have to put video up there very high. It was certainly my gateway to a lot of that music. Sure. And certainly for people of your vintage and my vintage, I love driving around the car, <laughs> you know, particular stations, especially in Toronto, it's like eighties weekend, eighties time i can imagine another surreal thing for you must be driving around and just hearing songs that you've actually performed live it must be just uh, mind-boggling it's pretty cool like i mean i i told i told fru i was in germany with with uh tony hatch we're playing a festival and i'm i'm in the hotel lobby and they're playing my town yeah and i said i was just playing that song with that dude last week i was playing that song and i'm in germany and i'm hearing that voice i was in my monitor last week you know, like, I love that. And the Nelly stuff, like, I mean, to see the power of a great song transcend borders, like, I mean, like, we're in Slovenia, we're in Tokyo, we're, you know, all over the place, and then those songs just connected, right? And you can't deny it. Like, I mean, people say, oh, it's all image, it's all this. No, it comes down to songs. People with great songs succeed. If they, if, you know, they need, sure, you need exposure and you need a couple of breaks, but like, I mean... Those songs translate around the globe. And when you talk about around the globe, 150,000 people in Mexico City sounds crazy, but you actually played to larger crowds in Poland. Yeah, now that was the only time I ever had Nelly turn around me and say, that's a lot of people. And I was like, yeah, dude. She goes, I'm a little nervous. And I was like, yeah. We walked out there and I remember there were helicopters above. I guess they're filming. Like it was this festival called the Tall Ships Festival in Chichen, Poland, and you couldn't see the end of the people. I think I walked the stage. It was like Rolling Stones level shit, right? Like I think I walked out to the edge of the stage, and my wireless unit was cutting out. Like I think I was too far from the wireless unit. It was it was massive, but you know what? I really took a moment to soak that in. I was, you know, at that point, I'm thirty six or thirty seven. You know, I said you know what, stop and look at this. Like, you will not probably do this again in your life. So when you take the solo, 
spread your legs a little wider. Well, hold that guitar up. Be Jimmy Page. Be Eddie Van Allen. I mean, you can't play like them, but maybe you can look like them. And this is as close as you're going to get. <laughs> a great moment. Sean, how many guitars do you own? One one answer in this household would be not enough. One would be too many. <laughs> yeah. I won't say who would be saying what. No, I've got, I, I think I've got about 40 or something. Wow. But but they they go out, right? I, I, I bring them to school and... It's uh, once in a while one get one goes out the house they give them to somebody one comes back in i'm I'm actually getting a new um I, i'm working on a signature model with uh, a guy named les godfrey he made me the prototype uh, uh, of guitar design called the x wire now we're going to do the sk wire and it's uh very cool like i, I mean i love guitars I, I use kramer guitars and gibson guitars I, i've been endorsed by a number of great companies yamaha bc rich aria over the years i i, I just love them i love the shape i love the look, I, I love this, the style aspect. I, you know, I'm one of those guys where I want a guitar to make me feel cool before, like, yes, it's important. It plays great. It's obviously important. It sounds great, but it ha I do like the look of guitar. Like, I mean, I, I just, I mean, a, a sneak Sabo signature Kramer and rock of ages. And I get excited every time I pick that up. I, I'm like, I'm in Skid Row, man. I'm at the Sky Dome watching Skid Row open for arrows, but I'm snake. I get to be snake Sabo. You know what I mean? I love it. Well, two listener questions would be, do you name your guitars? And secondly, the Flying V, is that uh, the most significant looking one? I don't name my guitars. I, I you know, I, I, I was never one of those guys. Uh, so I don't have specific names for them. I, you know, it's funny. I only have one Flying V now. I've had a number over the years, but I, don't, I have a Washburn Flying V. I love it. I love Flying V, but I'm more into like the Explorer shape. I, I like I like that kind of shape. And you know what? I love them all. It's like picking your favorite kid. I don't know. I I, I like I like them all. <laughs> but I but I'm not I'm not afraid I'm not afraid of a pointy headstock. Some people are averse to that. I am not. I am. I as I get older, I embrace it more and more. Now, Sean, in addition to being a Toronto legend, <laughs> you are also a North Bay legend. Just last year, inducted into the North Bay Musicians and Entertainers. Hall of Recognition. Congrats on that. And Thank you. That must have been just an amazing time for you. Oh, very, very, very special. And um, yeah, to be nominated and 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 to be in that in that hall with so many peers and so many people in that wonderful art space community of North Bay. Yeah, it was very special. I got to take my mom as my date. That was very, very fun, you know. And uh, and get to perform. I got to perform a song. A Crash Kelly song that I wrote that was very inspired by my teenage experience in North Bay. And yeah, man, it's a, it was a thrill. And it was a thrill to, I actually had a chance to run into my old high school music teacher there, Neil Kennedy. And, you know, just realize how lucky I've been in my life. Like, I've had no obstacles on my way to having the opportunities. I, mean, I really have it, man. The doors have been kicked open by great educators, wonderful parents, good friends, and, uh, and, and, and amazing artists who've shown humility and provided me with opportunities. So I, I've got nothing to kick about. I, I got way more than I ever put into it, and I'm, I'm fortunate. But it was great to actually get to acknowledge Mr. Kennedy and, and realize, like, here's a guy who took the time to help you get to where you needed to go and was a great musician himself. And yeah, yeah, just made me feel lucky. Oh, gratitude. And it's just so great that you're able to see him. That's amazing. I think it's a great note to close on. Sean, I want to ask you about what plans you have with the book launch. Are there like 
book signings or events? What what happens behind the scenes to make a book launch work? Well, I've been knocking around the idea of a book launch. It's funny, though, like, though, those things are, I think with social media, uh, you really kind of launch your book daily. You know what I mean? You can constantly be reaching out to people. I might do one. I, and if I did do one, I think what I'd like to do is kind of just do a strip down, grab an acoustic guitar, go to a little pub, and, and kind of break down some of these songs and kind of just break them down to their basic element, you know, which is funny because I love all the bombast. Like every night at Rock of Ages, some people, it's funny, some of the actors were talking about like there's this pyro that kind of rains down on us, right? And they're going, oh man, got to watch out. And I'm going, no, nah, man, I want to get right underneath it. I don't care if it singes me a little bit. It's worth it. Like I'm pointing my headstock. I love the bombast. I love the pageantry of it all. But it might be kind of cool to just do like a kind of stripped down thing, get a few friends to come out and sing some of those great songs, maybe talk a little bit about the book. But yeah, nothing, nothing concrete yet for a book launch, but I'll be constantly reaching out to friends. It's funny, my, my, my friend M. Griner is actually in England right now. She's going to be performing with Def Leppard. On, they're doing her version of Pour Some Sugar on Me on their new album, Drastic Symphonies. And, but she sent a picture of uh, Vivian Campbell from Def Leppard and, and from Dio and White State hold, holding the book. I had interviewed him and, you know, stuff like that, you know, reaching out to the guys I talked to. And hopefully they, if they, you know, like the book, that might spread the word. But that's it. So just, be, just be sharing. I just want to share it with people. Share it with, with people like you, you know, and, 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 and spread the word. And it's out there. You know, my, my publisher, ECW, has done a great job getting the book out. It's, uh, you know, I'm excited. Excellent. Well, I did enjoy reading it. I certainly enjoyed reading it today. Please tell us how we can reach you, follow you. What is the best way to know what you're up to? Because it sounds like you always got a lot going on. Yeah, the best way is I, I'm at Sean Kelly Guitar, whether it's at Facebook or Instagram. Instagram's a great spot. I'm, I'm using that mostly these days. And as much as I love social media, I, I, I don't I, I don't post like you're supposed to post. I, I, I do it like I like it's like I play. I don't necessarily do it right all the time, but I always try and do it from the heart and when I feel like it, <laughs> you know. Well, that's a good way to do it. Yeah. The book again, Don't Call It Hair Metal, Art in the Excess of 80s Rock, available now from ECW Press, wherever you get your books. Sean, thanks for your time, and uh, I wish you a great finish to Rock Ages and a great summer of touring ahead. Thank you very much, Andrew. Pleasure talking to you. It was my pleasure having you. And to the listeners, on behalf of Sean Kelly, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. This is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. 
I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.